Wow. Thank you, choir. Thank you, musicians. Give them another round, will you? They're double duty today. Praise God. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. And the Lamb has indeed overcome. Do you know why? Because there is power in the blood. Amen? It is Resurrection Day. Can you believe it? Most of you can, apparently. You believe it's already Easter? I mean, doesn't it seem early? Well, it seems early because it is. Did you know that this is the earliest Easter in 95 years? Did you know that? The last time Easter was this early was 1913. So if you are 95 years or older today, do we have any 95 or older? We had one in the morning service. Wait, you're not 95 or over. 95 years, not days, son. Ah, oh, 90, how old? 90, not quite. Well, we had someone who was 95 and six months in the uh, morning service. If you're 95 or older, you remember, at least barely, the last time that Easter was this early. And did you know there's no way Easter can be earlier than March 22? So today, March 23, we're only one day later than the earliest possible Easter ever. The last time, the last time Easter was on March 22 was 1818. So, if you're 190 years or older today, and the next time, the next time Easter will hit the same date as today, the next time it will hit March 23 is the year 2228, 220 years from now, and the next time Easter will land on March 22 is the year 2284, or 277 years from now. Wow! You take it, that's enough high math for a, a, an Easter morning, Pastor. Get on with it. But think of it. No one alive has or will ever see or celebrate Easter any earlier than we do this resurrection morning. And so today we have a very rare, if not historical, opportunity to celebrate Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Amen? So let's see. Let's see what God has in store for us on this historic occasion. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. In the 11th chapter of John, it's very late in Jesus' earthly ministry. The time of year is late winter. Think January, February, or maybe even early March. And this particular winter in John 11 is the winter right before the spring festival of Passover when Jesus is crucified. This is Jesus' last winter, at least in this life. And so in John 11, Jesus is literally walking to Jerusalem one last time. He's on His way to Jerusalem to die. And on the way... Jesus stops in Bethany in John chapter 11. Bethany is a small village less than two miles east of Jerusalem. It's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, the same mountain where Gethsemane is, the same mountain that the Palm Sunday procession went down, the same mount where Jesus would later ascend. Bethany is on that eastern slope less than two miles east of Jerusalem. And He stops there after receiving the news that his very dead dear friend Lazarus is sick, and in fact he is dead, his very dear friend Lazarus is sick, Jesus gets the news, and he learns too that Lazarus is now dead. So let's pick up the story. We'll pick up the story, John chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. John 11:17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Jewish custom was, or belief was, that for three days at least, one soul would linger around the dead body just in case the body would resuscitate. Then the soul would jump back in there. So when we read here, four days, it's there to emphasize like, he's really dead. The soul is, is gone. This body is dead. 
Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Some of them, as we'll see later, probably professional mourners. When Mary heard that Jesus, or Martha, excuse me, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Mary answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. These are the very words of God. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Are you ready for a little Greek lesson this morning? Well, that's much better than the first service, but let's try it again. Are you ready for a little Greek? Yeah. That's good, because I'm not sure what I'd do if you said no. Close in prayer and let you go, I guess. But You know, a little Hebrew or Greek often helps us. Helps us to appreciate further what's going on in Scripture. For whatever reason, God chose to write His book in Hebrew and in Greek. So it can be helpful to look at the... The Hebrew and Greek peeking out from behind our English translations. So if you're game, let's do it. There are five Greek words I'd like for us to look at this morning. I've had them on the screen already. You've already been looking at them in dismay uh, up on the screen. But let's pick up the action again at verse 33. <clears throat> Mary has just fallen at Jesus' feet in tears. And she repeats her sister Martha's cry. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then we see Jesus' reaction in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And there's the first Greek word that we'll look at this morning. It's the word klio, which is translated here, 
weeping. Say Clio, will you? It just does my heart good that you just spoke biblical Greek. Say it again. Clio. Nice. Now, according to Jewish custom, families were expected to hire professional mourners. Even poor families would hire at least two flute players and one woman to do the wailing. Not to go fighting for a whale, but mourning. One wailing woman. And because it appears in the next chapter that Mary isn't exactly poor, remember, this is the Mary who later takes a pint of outrageously expensive perfume, pours it on Jesus' feet, and and wipes it with her hair. Remember her? She's probably not exactly poor to have such expensive perfume. So it's possible, if not likely, that many professional mourners were on hand, adding their cry to, to those of Lazarus' family and friends. The air that day in Bethany, the air that day in Bethany must have been filled with, with the death wail. Now, I don't know how many of you have traveled, especially in Eastern cultures, if you've ever had or come across or been a part of a funeral wake where that death wail is going on. I've got to tell you, I've only seen it once or twice uh, for real in person. It is, it's this eerie, unearthly sound. I mean, if... If utter chaos and despair has a sound, man, it's got to sound like this death wail. And that death wail is what Clio gets at, if we look at the Greek. It's what it sounds like. Now, I found an audio clip that I'd like to play for you. It'll give you a feel, at least, what greeted Jesus, at least sound-wise, in the air at Bethany when he entered into that village. Let's listen to Clio. at least of what Clio is like. And I, I'm not so sure, at least for me, maybe the English word weeping brings that to you. But, but, but Mary's weeping and the Jews weeping in verse 33. It's Clio. It's not, you know, quiet tears of sadness, which is what I think of when I think of weeping. The Greek Clio describes loud wailing and, and crying out. A loud, such loud public displays of grief that were common in Jesus' culture. Clio is a loud cry of utter despair. Clio is, is the cry of devastation. Clio is that loud, hopeless wail. And when Jesus sees and hears their Clio, Their loud wailing of despair. He is visibly upset. In the same verse, 33, look at what it says. Jesus is deeply moved. Deeply moved is a single Greek word. The word is imbrimaomai. You want to try that one? See, I make a harder one come next, right? Let me say it first and then you say it. Imbrimaomai. Excellent. Guess where that word was commonly used in classical Greek literature? Imbrim aomai, it describes the fierce laboring snort of a horse that is in a war or in a race. Can you picture it? A horse that's working really hard to win a race or is doing the charge in a war. Intense. Yeah, I know. I know it's funny, but part of it's cultural, too. Whenever someone tries to... We laugh a little bit, maybe because we're a little uncomfortable. Maybe because it's funny, too. Okay. I know, I look ridiculous. But it's because our culture says I look ridiculous. So fight that a little bit this morning, would you? It's okay that you laugh. You know, never come again. No, just kidding. But you know, if you can, with me, put cultural... I know we don't do things like that. We don't snort like horses. But... 
I mean, this is, this is deeply moved. Think of that horse laboring. For, for, for humans, for humans in Greek literature, it is used, that word, imbrim aomai, to describe outrage, anger, or even fury. It is not, imbrim aomai, is not merely internal emotional feelings. The word indicates... Here's what one scholar says, indicates an outburst of anger. Imbram Aomai tells us that, that Jesus' reaction went, it went past sorrow and sadness, and it landed at actual indignation. You know this word indignation? If you're indignant, you're angry because of injustice. Indignation is that anger that is aroused and pushed by something that is unjust or unworthy or evil. It's righteous anger, indignation. So unfair you get angry over it. And so too with the word, the, other, the, the next Greek word, coupled with imbramalmai, the word troubled in verse 33. The Greek word for troubled is tarasso. Say tarasso. Excellent Greek this morning. Jesus is both deeply moved and troubled. Here's the most common use of terrasso. It involves, interestingly enough, water. Terrasso describes the waves and the breakers of a waterfall when they crash and they land. Terrasso describes waters that are stirred up or churning like in a storm or like the pool of Bethesda, which would churn prior to healing. I mean, who knows? It's on the list to ask the Apostle John someday. Maybe he used the Greek terrasso because a few chapters before he has Jesus in John 7 calling himself living water. Remember? Great picture there or connection, possibly intentional in John. Living water himself, Jesus, is stirred up. He's churning like crashing surf against a rocky shore. And so Jesus is Imbramaomai and Tarasso. He sees and hears the despairing and hopeless Clio of his friends. And his reaction is not only empathy and grief, but also perhaps even more so, in my opinion, Jesus is furious. He's indignant. He's agitated. His entire being, body and soul, is churning. These powerful Greek verbs here show Jesus bristling. That's one of my favorite words. When you bristle with anger or emotion, he bristles at the sight and sound of loud, hopeless clio erupting in the air around him from those he loves. He bristles, perhaps, in anticipation of his imminent and impending, impending assault on death. In my opinion, Jesus here is angry. He's indignant. He's outraged at death itself and the devastation that it causes. I mean, you can almost feel that in his next question, can't you? It's so short. Terse, even. Maybe because he, he's keeping that churning at bay until he can throw it all at death in a few minutes later. And so, bristling with, with, with righteous anger, perhaps, Jesus manages to get out the next few words. Where have you laid him? Suddenly, the God-man's sole focus is now, I'm going to find that tomb. His sole focus is, find the tomb, and I'm going to show humanity God's power over its ultimate foe of death. The God-man, Jesus, zeroes in on doing something about all this clio going on around Him. Around Him that day and around Him throughout the ages. Where is He? Let's go give death a call, Father. Let me at it. i got a little something for death. And the people say, whoa, come and see, Lord, they reply. And that brings us right to the famously short John 11:35, the shortest English verse, at least in the Bible. Jesus wept. And there's something huge here that the English, I'm afraid, utterly misses. The Greek word here for Jesus weeping is 
different. It is a different word than the weeping of the sisters and the Jews. In English, use weeping and wept. It's the same. It's a different word, my brothers and sisters. Jesus weeping is not Clio. Jesus doesn't Clio in despair like everyone else. And the Greek makes that clear. Instead, Jesus' cry is Doc Ruo. Say Doc Ruo. An English translation of John 11.35 that, that helps show the difference between Clio and Doc Ruo might be something like this. Jesus burst into tears. His anger and his indignation, his embraumai and terrasso, burst into heartache and grief. Have you ever been so angry? So angry at sin or evil or chaos or any sort of injustice or something that you feel is just so unfair. Have you ever been so angry at something like that you literally, you, you, you burst into tears of sorrow? Something or someone that you're arguing with or fight, that you love them so much. Some of you are going to think your marriages. I, I know I think mine. I mean, you've ever given a knockdown, drag out argument with the spouse. You're here with me right now. They mean so much to you and you're so angry at them. Or so angry at and, and, and you throw it at your spouse. And then you ever have that just bubble over into tears? And why yet? Because you love them so much at the same time that... So much anger. It's like anger and sorrow, at least in the funeral context, it's like they meld together. See, hopeless Clio isn't here. So it's not the typical funeral cry of hopelessness that you heard. It's Doc Ruo. He bursts into tears. Jesus' anger, sorrow over what death has done, it busts God up. God bursts out crying at what death has done. And it's a cry of resolve, not despair, not simple, quiet grief. Sure, he's empathetic and grieving as well, but it's a cry of someone who's outraged by it. Where is he? Bursts out crying. Come see. And then Jesus reaches the tomb. Once more, we see in verse 38, Imbram Almai appears. That outrage. He's still outraged. Tears now streaming down his face in, in, in furious sorrow. And yet another short, terse statement. This time a command. Take away the stone. And he prays to his Father in heaven. So there's no doubt whatsoever that it's Almighty God Himself who sent him. Certainly sent him there that day to Lazarus' tomb, but also sent him to a world reeling in death and pain and suffering, reeling in sin. He prays to his Father to show the world that Almighty God sent Jesus here to deal with death, with all of it, once and for all. And there he is, in Brimaomai, Tarasso, Dakruo. And then my English Bible says, Jesus called in a loud voice. For the love of God, called in a loud voice? Is this the best we can do? He called in a loud voice. That, that's so subdued and controlled, isn't it? I mean, why? It's my question. It's rhetorical. Don't try to answer it. Why? Why do so many translators seem to feel the need, the apparent need, to turn Jesus into this intellectual, academic, stiff, subdued, hand-wringing philosopher? Called in a loud voice. Let me ask you. Give me some English verbs, would you please, for called in a loud voice. Shouted, yelled, screamed, hollered. Ah, I got one more. What? I heard cried out. What was yours? I still can't hear it. Demanded. Okay, that's good. Oh, that just makes the list. No, that's a good one. Thank you. I mean, why can't we just say Jesus shouted at least? Is it because this seems undignified or something? Come on. Jesus is such a passionate man. 
God is such a passionate God. And John tells us this in this amazing story. He goes and picks and uses all of these deeply passionate Greek words. And instead, in English, we end up with weeping, deeply moved, troubled, wept, and now called in a loud voice. Ah! Come on! What's the deal here? Let Jesus be the passionate God-man that the Greek says He is, for heaven's sakes. Now, I know I need to seek forgiveness for ranting here a bit at good Christian people who gave us our Bible translations. So let me tell you, the translations that you have in it, they're excellent. They're a result of hard work. You can rely on them. And seriously, praise God for their hard study and work. But this kind of thing just frustrates me a bit. Can you tell? I mean, why? Is it because passion scares us? Is it because a passionate Jesus, I mean, that's too wild at heart? It's unpredictable? How about this one? Does Jesus shouting make him too human? Well, isn't that part of the point the Bible makes? That he's all human and all God? Now, you've all done a much better job with the Greek word that John chose here. The verb here for called in a loud voice is krogadzo. Say krogadzo. Yeah, it kind of sounds like what it means. I love that. Krogadzo. Krogadzo is used five other times in the Gospel of John. All five come after this. So John all of a sudden gets gets krogadzo out of his thesaurus, and he keeps it around for writing the rest of his letter. It's used five more times, okay? And this just gets me every time. I'm going to get worked up again. That's all right. Every other time in the Gospel of John that Krogadzo is there, these very same English translators use the English word shout. But oh no, not here. Not on Jesus' lips. And the only explanation I can come up with is because someone other than Jesus is doing it. What's up with that? To put some translators into timeout is kind of what I'm feeling, but maybe I need to be put in timeout. That's okay. We'll get in there together. Okay, I need to let that go. The other five times, the other five times John uses Krogadzo, the first one's on Palm Sunday, right on the other side of the same Mount of Olives, when the crowds of people are shouting, Hoshana, Hosanna. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. That's called Godzo. And the other four times, I won't do them all, but the other four times have something in common. They too are also from turned up crowds shouting for Jesus' crucifixion. When they shout, crucify him, crucify him, that's Krogadzo. They shout it. Give us Barabbas is Krogadzo. Crucify him is Krogadzo. And so Jesus calling in a loud voice is not merely a firm request. <laughs> it's more than a loud call. He shouts. He yells. Like an excited mob of people shouts and yells at the top of their lungs. As one of my favorite commentators on the Gospel of John's put it, Jesus' shout, he says, is a shout of raw authority. So he stands there, bristling with anger and sorrow, and he shouts to his dear friend, Lazarus, come out! Oh, let Jesus shout, will you? It's okay. Please, don't let tame English words... Hide Jesus' passion for you. And in this case, passion for you and against death. Jesus is so much, much, much more than a walking, talking, pontificating, theological dictionary. Jesus is the walking, living, breathing passion of God in this story and everywhere in the Gospels. 
You know, I'll bet when we see him one day again, face to face, real life, when we see him again in his flesh, I bet we'll be taken aback just by how alive he is. Do you ever think of that? Like when someone is standing before you just like I am and it's really him. I mean, it's stunning, wouldn't it be? It's like, no, no, I'm Jesus. You almost won't be able to believe it, right? I bet we'll be stunned just by how alive and there he is. The fire in his eyes. The love that just pours from him. His unbridled, transparent, charismatic, compassion and love. He cares. Be with him this long, you know, whoa, this guy cares. Look at how alive he is. He truly cares deeply. So please, people of God, let him shout once in a while. Now, death, it's going to sound so redundant and almost seems silly. Death is such a terrible thing. <laughs> no, duh. But camp there with me a minute. It makes us feel, death makes us feel so helpless, doesn't it? So sad. So hopeless. Losing someone close to you is brutal. If that's happened to you, you know. It's devastating. And it's been that way for all cultures of all human beings across all time since Adam and Eve. That hopeless, helpless, terrifying, stalking after you pain of death. Scholars tell us, anthropologists tell us, one window into any culture and what they're like, one thing they look at historically and even today, one window into any culture is through its media. How it communicates. Things like art. Things like what they put in stone and the type of buildings they make. Things like music. And in our culture, it seems, one that is prominent for many, television and movies, moving pictures, can provide a window into what's going on in the culture. Now, we put together a series of clips, video clips, for you this morning. And I'm treating it as, as a window into even our, our secular culture. I wanted you to feel even the agony of our scientific, who-needs-God, secular culture sometime. They're in agony, too, as they struggle with death. And, and as you're seeing into that window, you might even recognize yourself when you struggled with death. Now, before I roll the picture, I need to warn you. Um, if there are particularly young children here, you might give them a peppermint and it's a good time for them to maybe hide their little eyes. I, I would rate the clip about a PG. Um, my nine-year-old son had no problem with it. But, you know, if there are tenderer eyes than that, at least, or in your discretion, um, I don't want someone to be traumatized. We'll certainly talk about what we see afterward. And please, as you gather today, maybe you'll talk about this experience as well. I just want to warn that, warn you right now, uh, for those of you with particularly young kids. Okay, here is a brief look into that devastating pain of death. Let's watch. I want you to know this morning that Jesus' response to all of that hopelessness and helplessness and pain and death, He's angry at it. He bristles in anger and he bursts into tears each and every time we feel death's despair. And he doesn't only get mad and cry about it. 
he does something about it. He did something about it. He took aim at death, and he utterly destroyed it. Later, John writes another book. We call it Revelation. And there John tells us, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And what I'd like to do or try to do next this morning is to reenact with you a bit the Lazarus story. Try to give us an experience of, of Jesus' response to, to all that you just saw and all your feeling at this moment, perhaps, and all that it represents, the pain and the suffering and the chaos of death. Now, I'm going to need your help to do this. I can't do all the parts alone. So you all are Martha, Mary, and the crowd of mourners and Jews there that day. That's you guys. I get to be Jesus. Hey, if you preach the sermon, you get to be Jesus. But this morning, I get to be Jesus. Now, your parts are going to be up on the screen and underlined. So we'll work our way through part of the story at least. And then you do your best. Remember our Greek lesson this morning, and I will too. Now, the part that's underlined when we get to it where it says uh, weeping, We'll leave that to the sound booth. I won't wait and make you Clio today. Uh, culturally, that's almost impossible for us to recreate that. So that part is for the sound booth. Okay, so, so let's give it a try. For this to work, you can't be timid. Don't be shy. Put it out there, will you? Help God create for us a, a meaningful experience for us this morning as we reenact the Lazarus story. Let's give it a try. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, and When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Jesus burst into tears. Then some Jews said, some of them said, Jesus once more in Brimalmai, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away that stone. And I tell you, Martha, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Took away the stone. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Lazarus, come out! Your reaction that day might have been a lot like theirs. Although theirs might have been, they're pretty superstitious folk. It's a ghost! Or what do we do? You know, we can't touch a dead body. It doesn't say in the text, but Jesus is right there calling his friend. I'll bet. And now your reaction is similar in another way. Don't move. I don't want you to fall down the steps, okay? Okay. Now your, now your reaction is similar in another way. Jesus had to tell them, look what next. 
I mean, they must have just been sitting. Nobody made a move to do it or he wouldn't have. Like, what? You know, Martha, Martha, you said you believed I am. The... Take off his grave clothes and let him go. Take off his grave clothes and let him go. Yes. Yes. Yeah, do you think a cheer? There wasn't Clio in the air anymore. Now, we don't know how old Lazarus was. I mean, you know, conventional wisdom or whatever, for whatever reason, when we don't know an age, we make people, you know, like 25 or something in the prime of their life. Maybe. Could have been an old man. Could Maybe he was nine. We, we don't know for sure. Now, reason I chose, I chose a child it's because I know many of you have lost kids and I wanted you to see a child coming out of grave clothes vibrant and full of life and to tell you that if you've lost a child you will see him again and you'll participate if they're in their grave clothes yet to taking them off. And your child will be there. Sierra will be there. Amy, Joseph, my, whatever. Maybe. Have you ever even thought? Statistics say that some women miscarriage, you know, they don't even know it because of this rotten, awful, sinful world we live in. You all might have kids you don't know of. Did you ever think of that? You come running into heaven. Austin, Mr. Lanning, is that is your name Mr. Lanning? Yes. Daddy! Maybe? If it's a little girl? Daddy! What's your name? I don't know. God calls me princess. He says he'll give me a name when you get here. To which I might say, let's go with princess. (laughs) You'll see him again. As sure as you see Peter standing here, you will see them again. Amen? Now, quickly, I got the record, so let's go for it. What difference does Jesus' victory, what difference does His victory over death make in our lives today? It should make all the difference in the world. Do you remember that very first exchange between Martha and Jesus? Martha says to Jesus, I know Lazarus will rise again on the last day. You might think that Jesus would respond, good for you, Martha, very good. You get a theological gold star. But he doesn't, not quite. He corrects her. He adds to it at least. He encourages her to take one huge step further. He says, last day, I am Verb of being, I am the resurrection and the life right here, right now. He who believes in me right here, right now will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? Don't miss this. Jesus claims he is the resurrection and the life. That's who he is. And so not, this is not, not only a last day event. Martha says Lazarus will rise on the last resurrection day. And Jesus says in effect, last day, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then you can't really die. Did you ever think of that? Now I know, absent Jesus coming again in our lifetime, there will come a time for each of us in this room when our hearts will stop beating and our brain waves will stop waving or whatever they do. We will all die. But here's the powerful message of Resurrection Day. While we will all die, we really won't. <laughs> Not ever! I sometimes use this illustration with my students at Front Range Christian. They get a kick out of it. Hopefully you do too. I ask them, just imagine. Imagine if I would like drop dead right now. And in my classroom, Clio breaks out. Oh, no. They just kind of look at me. Ask him if I drop dead right now. Lord, this is just an illustration. So you know, he knows. Got to make sure he knows. 
I guess, what, just imagine, people of God, that I would just drop dead right now. Boom. Dead. I'm still here! Alive! Dead. Alive! Dead. You know what? And actually... Alive! And still alive and kicking, God bless it! I'm more alive now than I have ever, ever been! That's what Jesus does with death! I'm back. What a trip. Do you believe in Jesus who is the resurrection and the life? If you do then you live your lives knowing you will be together forever with God beginning today. You won't ever really die. Isn't that amazing? Jesus took the ugliest, most chaotic, most evil enemy of humankind ever, death, and He turned death into an open golden gateway to God. I mean, think of it. The devil's plan is to make death a doorway to absolute separation from God. That's Satan's plan in the garden and today. And it's as if God says to the devil, Oh, really? How about I take your plan? How about I take your tool of death, Satan, that you introduced into my beautiful creation and that you intend to keep people away from me? How about I take that same death and instead make death a pathway to be with me forever? How about that? How do you like those apples, Satan? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, Satan. You don't agree? Well, too bad. And God sends His Son. God Himself comes to make sure it is finished. To show it has been finished and still is. God sends Jesus, God Himself in the flesh. He sends Jesus to bristle with anger and indignation at all of our tombs. And then with three words, He deals a death blow that staggers death to its knees. Lazarus, come out! And there's death, pitifully trying in vain to cling to Lazarus. Has Lazarus ripped away when God merely speaks? And then with death staggered and on its knees, several weeks later perhaps, Jesus returns to Jerusalem to finish it off once and for all. He deals a death blow to death. Think of it. And instantly, instantly, Jesus transforms the bitter end of death into life anew with God. Amen? So how now do we live our lives in light of Jesus' victory over death? Gary Burge, author of one of my favorite commentaries on the Gospel of John, has this to say. Then we'll close. Every age struggles with the finality of the grave and the incomprehensibility of death. Throughout history, societies have surrounded death and burial sites with mystery and superstition. And this is no less true of modern Western society. In some respects, we also live in an age that does its best to deny death. People rarely die at home surrounded by their loved ones. Their bodies are, are no longer dressed and prepared for burial by the family as they were not too many decades ago. Today, this process has been sanitized, taken over by professional hospitals, hospices, and morticians. And as a result, few of us have ever seen someone die. And I dare say that before the 20th century, there were few who had not seen someone die. We build coffins that look like plush, oversized jewelry boxes and cemeteries that evoke the peace and serenity of a botanical garden. We use euphemisms, Mrs. Taylor passed away on Tuesday, to gloss over what we dare not say. And let's listen to what Gary says. All of this is cultural, springing from the heartfelt wish to make death pleasant. But it masks a profound anxiety that even the prettiest funeral service cannot disguise. Boy, that hits home to me this morning. What's Gary saying? What does Jesus being the resurrection and the life saying? What does it say about how we live our lives? Well, for one, it says we no longer need to fear death and tiptoe around it. 
It's saying we cannot look death straight in the eye with the confidence and not with anxiety or incomprehension or fear. Now, of course, we grieve and we mourn the dead. That's not what I'm talking about. We'll miss them. So, of course, there are tears. But there is no despair. There is no clio. Why not? Why such confidence? Because we know Jesus beat this thing. We know it no longer holds any power over us. In Christ, we have eternal life and eternal life that begins again right now. Oh, look, it just began again. And again. And again. It's always beginning, never ending. Never ending is always beginning. Think about it. Oh, eternal life just began, began again. Not only later, someday on the last day, Martha. It begins right now, today, this moment. Because Jesus is alive. And He is the resurrection and is the singular life. The one who destroyed death says so. And because Jesus lives and lives in us, we live too forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Would you stand, please? Speaking of Jesus living, let's close our service this morning with one last hymn. We'll just do the first person chorus of He Lives. And at the conclusion, if you'd remain standing to receive God's blessing, that would be great. He Lives. God's blessing this morning, my brothers and sisters, from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Happy Resurrection Day. Blessed Resurrection Day. I love you guys. Have a great Easter. Go in peace.